Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from No change without struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am S.D.D. Noor. Our topic today is the book Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. It is by Siddharth Kara who is an author, researcher, and activist on modern slavery. He is a British Academy Global Professor, an Associate Professor of Human Trafficking and Modern Slavery at Nottingham University, and a Senior Fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health. Kara has authored three books on modern slavery and won the Frederick Douglass Book Prize. His first book was adapted into the film Trafficked, and a feature film inspired by Cobalt Red is in pre-production. He divides his time between the United Kingdom and the United States, and today he is on the West Coast. And uh, Siddharth, I want to welcome you to um, A Public Affair. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And I have to say, um, like probably everyone who's listening to us, I have um, a desktop computer, though mine is 14 years old, I'm proud to say, and I will not get rid of it until I have to, but the time is coming, I think. I also have a tablet, a cell phone, and I drive a hybrid car. There are several other older devices in my house that should be recycled if um, if they are actually recycled. By having these devices and car, I am implicated, I've learned through your book, in terrible human rights abuses and exploitation of children. And I think we should all know about that so that we can change it, so that we can do uh, something. So, um, appreciate your book, again, Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. And I want to start with... Um, Really, the very first thing in your book, a quote that you have at the beginning of the introduction, and since you don't have a copy with you, I will read it. Such then was the main task, to convince the world that this Congo horror was not only an unquestionably a fact, but that it was not accidental or temporary or capable of internal cure, to demonstrate that it was at once a survival and a revival of the slave mind at work, of the slave trade in being. And this is a quote by E.D. Morel, or Morel, you can tell us, History of the Congo Reform Movement for 1914. Tell us um, what this is about and why you chose to start the book with that. Yes, well, thank you, Esti. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the threads I try to weave through Cobalt Red is this reflection back uh, on the history of the Congo. Uh, what's happening now is an enormous invasion of the human rights of the people of the Congo and the catastrophic destruction of their environment. But this is not an isolated one-time event. This um, heart of Africa has been pillaged for its resources going back uh, centuries. And in fact, the first great pillage is what's referred to by the quote uh, from E.D. Morel um, under King Leopold uh, of the Belgians. Um, he took control of the, of the Congo as personal property, as a colony in 1885. And it was at the beginning of the first automobile revolution. The car had just been invented in 1885 uh, and then rubber tires three years later. Uh, and the Congo happened to be sitting on one of the largest rubber tree rainforests in the world. So Leopold deployed a mercenary army uh, that terrorized and enslaved the local population to extract rubber 
uh, from the forest that was then exported into Europe and served to line the pockets of, of Leopold primarily. Um, so here we are now, more than 130 years later, in the midst of a, a, a new automobile revolution, the transition from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. And as you noted at the beginning, so many of our gadgets and increasingly electric cars have rechargeable batteries in them, and almost every one of those batteries has cobalt. And just as Leopold's Congo was sitting on the precious treasure needed for the first automobile revolution, that was rubber, this time it's cobalt. The Congo has more than has more reserves of cobalt than the rest of the planet combined. And it's being once again pillaged and ransacked for its resources um, through great violence against the people who live there. Mm-hmm. And and I think there is also another thing in that quote that you uh, weave through the book, and that is the fact that um, all of this is being hidden quite well. Like uh, E.D. Morrill says, um, such then was the main task to convince the world that this Congo horror um, was a fact. And um, that, again, is something that you try to do there. And and you also, in your introduction, you um, talk about a so-called accident in one of the mines. And um, you say, so I'll ask you to talk about that, what, what you actually witnessed, but you also say, uh, what has happened here um, must not be seen or something to that effect. So if you can explain both of these, um, both of these things. Well, the, the history of slavery and colonial pillage in particular has been one of obscuring the truth, of hiding it in the shadows and propagating fictions about uh, what's happening on the ground. And in, in the colonial times, Uh, while Leopold's terror army mutilated uh, and slaughtered the people of the Congo, uh, they put out fictions that, in fact, he was civilizing um, uh, Africa, bringing the uh, fruits of European civilization and Christianity um, and advanced society uh, to a backwards people to improve their lives. And uh, no one believed that a king could be capable of of, uh, uh, inflicting such violence and uh, brutality uh, against uh, people in, in the heart of Africa. And so Morel is saying we had to actually start by persuading people that these stories that were emerging about these brutalities were in fact true, and that uh, the propaganda machine uh, unleashed by Leopold and his uh, cohorts, that was the fiction. Don't believe a king, believe the people on the ground in Africa who are speaking their truth. And, and the same is true today. We have tech companies and EV companies propagating fictions about what's happening with cobalt mining in the Congo, saying that there's no child labor, uh, the, that the labor conditions are not that bad, that the child mine cobalt does not end up in their supply chains. Uh, so don't worry about it. And in fact, the people of the Congo, if we bother to listen to them through the pages of Cobalt Red, are telling us something completely different. They're telling us a truth that is completely antithetical to these fictions told at the top of the chain. And once again, it falls upon us to listen to the people on the ground, uh, revealing the appalling realities they face, digging cobalt out of the ground and feeding it up the chain into our rechargeable devices and cars. Mm-hmm. So tell us what it was that you witnessed uh, in the Camilombe mining area, which is an interesting also choice of word, right? It's not a mine, it's a mining area. Well, so Kamilombe is the end of the journey, uh, and I'd like the reader to go on the journey and and come to that event uh, at the right time, having having traversed the mining provinces, pulled back the layers uh, through each chapter until they come to this place in time where I think the truth is ultimately revealed, uh, and it's a horrible truth. Um, but what what people have to understand is. Um, uh, let's take a step back, okay? Um, people like you and I, SD, and the listeners here, we can't function for 24 hours without cobalt, uh, full stop. And three-fourths of the world's supply of cobalt is emerging from the Congo. Three-fourths. 
of the global supply of cobalt comes out of the Congo, and it's mined in utterly uh, destructive, violent, ruinous conditions. The environment there is being destroyed and contaminated. The people are being destroyed. Children are being killed. Uh, that's the ground truth uh, that the people of the Congo are crying out into a world that hopefully is starting to listen. Yeah, so um, it is, like you said, in all of these devices, and it also is touted, and, and I imagine for good reason, as um, one way to combat climate change through renewable energy, which, of course, is something we all want to do, we need to do, we must do if we want to survive. But um, reading the book, I um, looked at some videos online of the mining area, mining areas, and uh, what I saw was absolutely horrifying and um I was wondering if, um, even if we don't think about anything else, if the destruction of uh, what probably used to have trees and water and animals and so on, such a such a wide widespread destruction, if. Um, if that, if we just think about climate change, right, and the environment, if that isn't bad enough to negate what um, good cobalt does, do, do you know? I, I, I think you've put your finger on a very important um, element to this story, and, and it's, it's the great hypocrisy of what's happening right now. It is, of course, very important that we pursue climate sustainability goals born out of the uh, Paris Accords and reinforced at COP26 and 27 and so on. Um, we have an obligation to be good caretakers of this planet. I agree. Now, uh, that involves this enormous transition from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. And you see uh, country after country um, issuing mandates to cease the sale of um, internal combustion engine vehicles in the next decade, even 2030, 2035 which suggests that we'll go from about 25 million EVs on the road today globally to hundreds of millions just in the next decade. And almost every one of those is requiring cobalt and other battery component metals to be mined out of the ground. Now, what's happening in the Congo at the other end of that ledger as we charge forward with these import important uh, climate sustainability ambitions, we haven't stopped to turn around and see, are we trampling on anybody in the process? And had we done that, we would see we're trampling on the people of the Congo and destroying their environment to save ours. Now, what do I mean by that? You've talked about some uh, pictures of mines that you've seen, and they are horrifying. These mining concessions, concessions means the territory a mining company has leased in order to exploit it for cobalt, copper, nickel, and other battery metals. Some of them are as big as cities, the largest cobalt mine in the Congo is the size of London. And you have to imagine then millions of trees clear cut, not one of them replanted. Entire lakes, streams, rivers gone or polluted with toxic effluents. All these mining companies, they don't practice in the Congo in a sustainable manner. They spit out toxic effluents into the dirt, the air, the water. So the entire population is being contaminated every day. So when you walk around that part of the Congo, the entire area is a toxic haze. Your eyes burn, your throat burns, your skin itches, and that's happening to the people who live there, the babies, the children, the entire population. That's just from big industrial mining operations. So how can we pursue these important goals of preserving our environment by destroying the environment in the heart of Africa? Right, right. So um, you study modern slavery. You've written, this is your fourth book about that. And you say that the people of the DLC are slaves. What exactly do you mean by that? Slavery throughout history means treating someone like property, exerting power over them as if they are your property. And in the case of a human being, it means coercing their labor output for little to no income. 
through coercion, violence, and other coercive means. Uh, and that's precisely what's happening to the people of the Congo right now with cobalt mines. They are grinding themselves to the bone under the threat of violence, without an alternative, without any other way to survive, because the big mines have taken over the entire countryside, displaced hundreds of thousands of villagers. So they have no alternative. They work for a dollar or two a day, 12 hours a day, suffering toxic exposure because cobalt is toxic to touch and breathe. There are tens of thousands of women with babies strapped to their backs, inhaling toxic cobalt dust every day. There are children caked in grit and, and filth, scrounging in the ground for cobalt every day. So this is forced labor, it's hazardous labor, it's child labor, and it's the every in every conceivable way the face of modern day slavery mm-hmm. so other than the cobalt itself what is used in the mining process and how does that affect the health and life expectancy of the people who work there and the people who live there what about birth defects one of these videos that I watched showed this little girl who she has something that I suppose is her legs, but they're not really legs. I mean, there's the, it's some very serious birth defect. How uh, common in that is that? Well, this entire uh, cobalt scramble, um, uh, quite apart from the violence it's inflicting on the people and the environmental destruction, it has unleashed a public health catastrophe. So... In several ways. First, as I mentioned, cobalt itself is toxic to touch and breathe. So every single person working or even living in these mining communities is suffering toxic exposure every day. Now, the industrial mines, as I mentioned, don't practice mining in a sustainable way that they would in their own backyards. So when they process the ore that comes out of the ground, dug out by these people or by heavy machinery, Uh, cobalt is always attached to other metals in nature, namely copper and nickel, and they have to be separated from each other prior to export. And this involves the use of industrial acids, primarily sulfuric acid, to separate the copper, the cobalt, and the nickel uh, from the valueless stone in the ore body. And it unleashes these toxic gas clouds. They're these mustard-colored gas clouds. And I've seen them. And they waft over entire villages and then drop on the dirt, on the people, on the animals, and the water. And those gases are supposed to be contained, but they don't care because the people of Africa don't matter to them, uh, these mining companies. So there's a range of public health um, catastrophes taking place. There's a spread of cancers. There's thyroid disease, respiratory ailments, acute dermatitis, and as you mentioned, uh, a range of birth defects, um, all kinds of uh, birth defects uh, affecting the people living there. Uh, so these people are quite literally being poisoned to death every day, in addition to the injury and the destruction of their environment, all so we can plug in our gadgets and cars. Yeah, and uh, you have mentioned a number of times the kids that work there, I understand there's thousands of them. First of all, um, how how do they even get there? Are, are these all kids from the area or what? The, the, if, you, if you walk around the mining provinces of the Congo and if people want to look at a map, just, just go to uh, Google Earth and type in a town called Kolowezi and, and just scroll around and you'll just see giant, enormous swaths of brown. And it's taken over the countryside. So there are villages all over the place. As I mentioned, many villages were just bulldozed and displaced uh, to make space for yet another cobalt mine. So people are pushed to the fringes all around these mining territories. And that includes... Uh, tens of thousands of children. So they could be living in a ramshackle hut right next to a cobalt pit, and they'll go and uh, scramble in, try to fill up a sack of cobalt ore for the day, a uh, 30, 40-kilogram sack, working with probably uh, siblings and parents. Uh, and collectively, they'll end up earning a dollar or two for that, for that day. So there are no schools for these children to go to. They've been displaced. They've been pushed to the fringes. The only way to survive 
is to scramble and scrounge um, for cobalt in order to make sure they get that dollar or two and can eat that day. Mm-hmm. And when we say children, are we talking about six years old or 15 years old? Oh, well, both, both. It, you know, the, the ages, I've, I've documented children as young as six, and it depends on the task. So, you know, surface digging, that means taking like your bare hands or a little pick at, uh, a small shovel and just digging at the surface uh, for cobalt ore. That could be done by children that are six, seven, eight, nine years old. There's also rinsing and sorting that's done by young children, uh, six and seven years old. If you imagine collecting a sack full of dirt and stone uh, and, and cobalt ore, you know, you have to separate out the, the valueless dirt from the cobalt, so they sieve it in these toxic putrid pools of water. And that's usually done by younger children as well. Now, teenage boys who are stronger will usually work with fathers and uncles to dig tunnels because as much as cobalt can be found pretty close to the surface in the Congo, there are higher grade deposits 50 feet down, 100 feet down. And so stronger teenage boys and of course grown men will dig these tunnels to try to get to those higher grade deposits because that means they might earn instead of one or two dollars that day, uh, three, four or five dollars that day. And that's a substantial increase in income for them. Mm-hmm. And um, some of these children are not local, right? Some of these children have been brought there by militiamen. Explain what's, what that scene is. Well, you know, there's a lot of money um, to be made Uh, in this war-torn, lawless zone of the Congo. And militias uh, have have been participating in it. And, you know, the Congo is such a war-torn, impoverished country. There are militias, hundreds of militias that roam around the countryside, um, occupying territory, coercing people to work for them. And so many of them have started trafficking children from other parts of the Congo, Uh, into the cobalt mining provinces to dig for them uh, because they'll get that few dollars a day that those children are digging. And so I documented children who had been trafficked from other parts of the Congo by militias, sold from one militia to another, and then coerced to dig um, maybe at a village, maybe in a mining area um, uh, to fill those sacks of cobalt. And then in this case, uh, the money largely goes to the militia to fund their operations. Mm-hmm. So they basically have been kidnapped from, from their homes and their families and uh, trafficked into the mining areas. And then the money that they earn actually goes back to the militias. Where, where do they live? What do they eat? Who, who takes care of them at night? What, what, what is their life like? Well, it's a it's a it's a miserable life, and and maybe they were kidnapped, or maybe they're just orphan children. You know, people don't live mm. very long in the Congo, yeah. Uh, so there are nobody knows how many children who have been orphaned um, because of disease and violence uh, and and high mortality rates, just living in such a poor war torn country. So um, they will be uh, probably. The, the ones I met were trafficked into sort of villages, little remote village areas. They may be um, uh, several children put to live in a hut and then they'll dig in and around uh, the village and the hills um, or in, you know, you can just walk around the Congo and scrape your hand uh, along the ground, at least in the mining provinces, and you'll have cobalt in your, in your hand. You know, it, it's not hard to find. It's, it's everywhere. As I said, there, there is more cobalt in the southeastern patch of the Congo than the rest of the planet combined. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this crazy scramble going on and everyone is praying and feeding on each other um, because there's so much demand at the top of the chain and no one at the top of the chain cares. Don't let them tell you otherwise. If they cared, they would have boots on the ground in the Congo ensuring their supply chains were untainted by child slavery, by this kind of violence and abuse. They all proclaim that their supply chains do not have child labor, mining companies practice sustainably, and yet none of them bother to send anyone on the ground to ensure that any of what they're saying is true. So we're back to morale. And when it was King Leopold putting out fictions about what was happening in the Congo, now it's uh, you know King Tech and King EV 
putting out fictions because they're busy counting money, they're busy selling us gadgets and cars, and they're not busy worrying about the basic human rights and dignity of their people in the Congo digging out their cobalt. Yeah. My guest is uh, Siddharth Kara. He is the author of three books on modern slavery, and we're talking about his latest book that was published just, um, just about a month ago, a month and a few days ago, um, titled Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. If you want to join the conversation, uh, the number here is 608 256-2001, extension 9. You can also join us on social media at Wart Talk on Twitter or um, on a, or a public affair on Facebook. So um, let's talk um, about the corporations, um, Siddharth. Um, they are... They do claim that they are committed to human rights and don't tolerate or allow for child labor. They actually created some international coalitions which um, tell us anyway that they ensure that the supply chain is clean. Tell us about these um, these coalitions, these um, organizations that uh, we are told are on the ground there in Congo and make sure that no children are working and that um, the people of the Congo are treated well. It's all paperwork. It's all words on paper. It has literally no meaning in reality. These alliances and coalitions are not on the ground in the Congo. I never saw them. I never met anyone living in the Congo who ever saw any of them doing any of the things they say they're doing. It's all just puffery meant to distract the world from the truth. And the truth for anyone, anyone who wants to see it, the truth is there plain as day. All you have to do, all these companies would have to do is go fly to the Congo and start walking around and they would see the truth. And the truth of the matter is this. There are hundreds of thousands of peasants and tens of thousands of children scrounging cobalt out of the ground every day and feeding it directly into the supply chains of these companies. They're not digging it for sport. The cobalt that they dig, which amounts to hundreds of thousands of tons per year, is not going to Mars. It is all going into the supply chains of big tech and EV companies, no matter what they claim uh, they're doing in terms of assurances that there's no child mind or, or peasant mind cobalt entering their supply chains. So is there no international organization or, or um, some kind of um, way to make sure that when we're told, for example, that there's no um, child labor in, um, in, for example, getting us cobalt, that that actually is the case? Is, uh, is it really um, up to the corporations to just lie to us and, and to us to believe it? As of this moment today, as we converse, the answer is yes. There's, there's no mechanism, there's no independent mechanism, no third-party mechanism, no structure, no organization, nothing that is actually monitoring or validating what's happening on the ground in the Congo. And that's the problem. That's why this book and these voices telling the truth from the ground are so important for us to hear. Let, let me make one example for you, mm -hmm. just so people understand. So... Big tech and EV companies will say, listen, we buy our cobalt from ABC Mining Company in the Congo. And ABC Mining Company tells us there's no child labor in the supply. Well, if you go and walk on the ground in the Congo and take a visit to ABC Mining Company, as I have, and all of these industrial mining companies, you'll see there are thousands of people, local people, including children, digging inside the pits inside that mining company digging cobalt that goes directly into their supply. The other thing you'll see is that there are thousands of people digging all around that mining company's concession. The, the cobalt doesn't stop at the fence, if, if there is a fence, and often there isn't. Uh, 
and all the cobalt they dig is sold through buyers, intermediaries, directly to that industrial mining company. And so before the cobalt ever leaves the Congo, it is impossible to discriminate what was dug out of the ground by heavy machinery and what was dug out of the ground by the hands of a child. Mm -hmm. And they can always um, hide behind the person or the, co the company that they bought it from, which has told them that everything is clean and good. That's right. No one is accepting responsibility for the truth. Yeah. You know, a tech company will say, well, um, you know, the battery company told me that their batteries are clean. The battery company will say, well, the mining company told me there's no child labor. And so everyone's pointing the finger downstream until the last finger is pointed at some child caked in toxic grit in a pit digging cobalt out of the ground for all of these companies. Yeah. So um, inevitably in uh, mining operations, there will be, and again, I, I must say so-called accidents because, um, and especially in situations like that, I think they are not, or tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like they're not, the corporations are not putting any efforts into make sure that the lives of the workers um, will be saved in 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 case um, there is one of these accidents and and they do happen. Tell us um, just how how frequent uh, how often does that happen and um, what happens? And I imagine kids are among the people who die. This much must be clear to everyone listening to us speak right now. The people in the heart of Africa don't count to the stakeholders up the chain. They've done nothing, virtually nothing, to demonstrate that there's any value placed on the humanity of these people. And so every day, Women and children, men and boys are suffering injury and death, and no one cares. No one's doing anything to help prevent these tragedies. So children, I told you, they'll climb into industrial mines. They're most welcome to because they boost production for the mining company for penny wages. And they'll climb up a pit wall that could be uh, 200 feet tall at a 45 degree angle into the pit. They'll dig their cobalt. Uh, fill up the sack and then bring it back down to give to the buyers for that mining company. And imagine trying to walk down a 45 degree angle of uh, unstable dirt and stone with a 30 kilogram sack of cobalt in your shoulders. You're probably going to collapse at some point or fall or slip. And that happens all the time. I've met children who had shattered legs, shattered spines. Does anyone care? Does anyone help them? No. It's the next child up. Next child up can be sent in to dig for these mining companies because there are so many poor children living in that part of the Congo. And we talked about tunnels. Men and teenage boys will dig tunnels up to 100 feet deep to try to find uh, higher grade cobalt so they can earn a little more money. And these tunnels do not have ventilation shafts, supports, rock bolts. They go straight down, maybe one meter diameter and then when they find the, the vein of cobalt, they'll follow it along parallel to the surface, crouched in darkness, breathing toxic particulates, not even able to sit up. And they might spend 12, 14, 20 hours underground. Hmm. And there are probably 10 to 15,000 tunnels like this. And once a week, at least one of them collapses. Hmm. And everyone who's down there is buried alive. And I have met with mothers, pounding their chest in grief, telling me that their teenage son was buried alive in a tunnel collapse, wives pounding their chest in grief that their husband was buried alive in a tunnel collapse, all these people, 10, 20, 30, 50 people at a time, buried alive, none of them count, no one cares. It's just next body up, keep the cobalt flowing because there's so much demand at the top of the chain. Yeah, and I don't suppose they are compensated for death or illness or injury, are they? 
they're not compensated even for the work they do, let alone when they're injured or killed. This is what I mean by modern day slavery. These people are treated as utterly disposable, expendable, subhuman contributors at the bottom of trillion dollar supply chains. And that is in a way like we're dialing the moral clock back two centuries, right back to Leopold and colonial times when the people of Africa didn't count. They were an expendable labor force fit only to generate profit for the big, rich global North people at the top of the chain. What, um, what happened during the pandemic when we were all um, sheltering in place and um, making, trying to make sure not to um, get um, COVID and if we did not to um, give it to others, did uh, the operations there stop as most operations here did? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, and it's something I looked uh, into very deeply in one of my trips um, following the pandemic. So most of us, you know, your listeners, you and I, we spent much of 2020 and even 2021 sheltering at home, working for home. Uh, our children went to school from home on tablets and laptops. So um, there was actually a massive increase in demand for rechargeable gadgets during the pandemic so that we could all work and continue our educations from home. All that cobalt was coming from the Congo. And there were periods of times when the big mines, especially early in the pandemic, would uh, uh, shutter operations to try to protect their staff from infections. Um, but demand for cobalt didn't stop. As we said, it only increased. And so there was all this pressure on the local population of people, women and children, uh, fathers and sons, to keep digging, to keep supplying cobalt up the chain. They didn't have social distancing or masks. Um, and so there was a rash of COVID infections across the mining provinces. And nobody to this day knows how many people were, uh, uh, became ill or, or died from COVID just to keep feeding cobalt up the chain so everyone outside of the Congo could continue uh, leading their lives uninterrupted. So... The DLC has a government. Um, it has a president and a prime minister. Um, what are they doing to support their citizens? Well, the Congo, as you know, is an immensely impoverished war-torn country. Um, the entire national budget of the Congo is the same as the state of Idaho and has 50 times the population. So that just gives you a sense of how poor that country is. And it has been racked by civil strife and violence since independence. The country gained independence in 1960, and it's been dogged by dictatorships, uh, foreign interference, violence and war. Most of the cobalt mining contracts were signed uh, under the previous administration of Joseph Kabila. They were mired with corruption and bribery. Uh, most of these were by Chinese mining companies. Um, the current president, Felix Shishikedi, uh, who won election in 2019, uh, is trying to bring more transparency and more accountability to the mining sector. He sees that Chinese companies in particular are just ransacking and pillaging the country's resources. Um, and there's an effort to try and, and migrate the country a little bit more towards the West to seek some uh, Western investment and more U.S. influence in the country, but it is very hard. It is a very difficult place to govern because of the poverty and, and the corruption. And, and to, be, to, be, to be utterly candid, the government should be doing more for its own people. Uh, no question about it. So much of the mining money, you know, mining companies pay taxes and royalties on everything they pull out of the ground. And there's just no accounting for where that money goes. And it eventually and inevitably lines the pockets of a lot of the political elite. Mm -hmm. We have um, a caller for you, Sid Harth, um, with really the essential question of the hour. Um, Helena, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for this show. Um, as a proponent of electric cars, I find this program very distressing to hear, and I'm just wondering what can we as people in the U.S. do to try and put pressure on the companies to, uh, of course, completely change their 
their way of doing things and make sure that this destruction of people and the environment in the Congo doesn't continue. Thank you, Helena. I, I think that's, you're right, that's, that's uh, one of the all-important questions of our time because we are in the, in the midst of this uh, um, enormous uh, and admittedly important transition to electric vehicles. Are we, if you are an owner of an electric vehicle or thinking of becoming one, uh, I think it is so important to clamor and agitate for accountability. Uh, these companies have uh, continued with the scramble for the last 12 years without any check on the conditions at the bottom of their supply chains. And I think right now is the time to clamor for accountability. It's not good enough for a company to say, well, you know, the Chinese mining company told me that they're maintaining human rights standards in the Congo. That's not good enough. They need to have boots on the ground at the bottom of their supply chains. You see, this enormous demand for cobalt is created at the top of the chain. And everything that's happening downstream is a consequence of that demand. So where demand is created, that's where the solutions need to start. And EV companies and tech companies need to have teams on the ground in the Congo monitoring mining operations and conditions so that when they proclaim to the world that their supply chains do not have child labor or other horrible conditions, it's a true statement. And when they proclaim to the world that mining companies are operating on a sustainable basis, that that's actually being maintained as opposed to clear cutting millions of trees and and polluting the environment of the Congo uh, in this mad scramble to feed cobalt up the chain. Yeah, and and I'm thinking that um, the tech companies, the EV companies are making huge profits and um it is entirely possible for them to pay the people of the Congo reasonable salaries and they will still be billionaires. So I wonder if there is some kind of organizing going on already here in the West and uh, if there's, uh, like, where can people go if they want to do the clamoring? What, what, what can people do? Well, Esty, this is a, a very important point you mentioned because... Uh, the, the fact of the matter is it would be a rounding error on the balance sheets of these companies to address most of the harm taking place. Um, you know, right now, a mother and father are being paid a dollar or two a day, which is not enough to survive. So they have to bring their children in to work to support income. Imagine just giving them a fixed wage of, say, $10 a day. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's a de minimis sum. Uh, big tech and EV companies wouldn't even notice that, a $10 day wage at the bottom of their supply chain. But that's enough for a family to eat, keep their children in school, buy clothes, buy medicines when it's needed. It's, it's a meaningless sum to these companies. How about PPE for each person uh, digging for cobalt? Some gloves, goggles, boots, a mask, so they're not being contaminated every day. And then having cancer and birth defects. How much would one suit of PPE cost to just kit everyone out? These are de minimis sums of money. So why aren't these kinds of activities being undertaken? And I think the only answer is it's those people over there and they don't count as much as our people over here. And until that mindset is altered fundamentally, then this kind of exploitation and degradation of the people of Africa will continue. So is there, is there some kind of central thing that where people can go and join and, and uh, um, make their voices count? Because I think if, if we do it just as individuals, you know, if I write to Chevrolet, which is I, I drive a Chevy Volt, um, who cares about my one voice? But is there is there organizing going on? It's the, we are at the early stages of this, um, and, and there's no central hub or uh, dominant organization pioneering or pushing this forward. You know, we're we're ten, twelve years into the cobalt revolution. Um, you know, imagine the first ten years of the slave trade. Uh, it, it was yeah. just it was just a new thing. So. Um, and this, it is only now, uh, with the work of some journalists, 
some of the videos you've seen online, and with the publication of Cobalt Red, the first book revealing this truth through the voices of the Congolese people. It's only now that the truth is emerging. And so that truth, I think, will activate a community of conscience that will then organize and create mechanisms or central, uh, uh, centralized organizations to clamor for change, to agitate. There is conversation happening in policy circles about cobalt, about what's happening in Africa. It needs to be, um, it needs to take greater shape. It needs to be directed. There need to be new leaders, a new Morel, a new Roger Casement, uh, a new George Washington Williams. For people familiar with Leopold's Congo, there were leaders that emerged as the truth of his horror was revealed, and now the this new Congo horror and this new truth is being revealed and leaders will emerge and drag humanity forward through their force of will and their conscience to see that these injustices are set right. Yeah. Well, we have um, a question from a listener and it's a thing that you do tackle in the book. Um, this listener asks if uh, you can comment on Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba's execution in 1961, and it's very relevant to what we're talking about, isn't it? Well, that uh, the 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 assassination, the assassination, the assassination of Patrice Lumumba taught post-colonial Africa and the Congo in particular uh, an important lesson, which is play ball with the global north or else, and that's why. When we talked about governance now, uh, why it is so hard to govern independently and, and without corruption, because if you don't play ball in Africa, uh, the lessons were taught. And so the very brief history is the Congo at independence in 1960 had a, had a democratic election and elected its first prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, and he had a bold anti-colonial vision, which was very understandable coming out of generations of colonial pillage. And at independence, about 80% of the government's income was from the mining provinces, these same mining provinces that are being exploited for cobalt today. And 11 days after independence, Belgium, the former colonial overlord, annexed the mining provinces. They weren't willing to give up on their um, cash cow. And Lumumba sought help from the UN. The UN would not help, so he turned to the Soviet Union. And that was the beginning of the end. So in short order, um, the prospect that uh, the Congo's mineral wealth would be funneled towards the Soviet Union and not towards Belgium, the, uh, uh, the U.S., and the neocolonial West uh, sealed his fate. And within a few months, um, Lumumba had been captured. He was tortured, assassinated, chopped to pieces. His body was dissolved in acid. Uh, this is by Belgians uh, primarily, um, and his bones were ground, and one tooth was kept as a souvenir by one of the Belgian assassins, which was only returned to Lumumba's descendants last year. Yeah. So uh, a bloody dictator, Joseph Mobutu, was propped up in his place by the U.S., by Belgium, by the U.N., uh, and he ran that country into the ground, but he had the support, the unwavering support of the West because he kept the minerals flowing in their direction. And so that was the lesson of Patrice Lumumba, that you either play ball with the West or else. Yeah. Well, as you uh, mentioned, Siddharth, you talked to um, people there who told you um, what's actually and really happening there. How dangerous was it for them to talk with you and how dangerous was it for you to even be there, let alone um, sniff around? It's very dangerous. Um, you know, this because there's so much money at stake there, uh, the mining provinces are highly militarized. Uh, the army is there. There are mining police and, of course, roving militias with Kalashnikovs and machetes all um, scrambling to control some little piece of valuable territory. And the truth is supposed to stay hidden so that money can keep flowing and business can continue as usual. So uh, the local population is very nervous to speak to outsiders about what's happening there because they can suffer very grave consequences. And of course, outsiders are certainly not welcome to be poking around uh, trying to uncover the truth of what's happening there. Now, I'm, I'm of Indian descent, so I was able to blend in. Um, there are quite a few Indians in the Congo, in Africa in general, uh, so I could blend in. Uh, I speak French, so I could move around. 
and seemed like I, I was relatively local. And I built ground relationships with people living and working in mining communities and through them established trust with people who would speak to me. But even then I had to go to very careful lengths to conduct conversations discreetly, sometimes only at night, sometimes in trusted guest houses, um, because people were very anxious to be seen. It is a very dangerous um, and hazardous part of the world to be sure. Mm-hmm. Well, we have um, just three minutes left and there's plenty more to talk about, but I wanted to ask you to choose between uh, offering us some um, ending words, things that we haven't gotten to talk about and that you want to highlight, or otherwise, if you can tell us very briefly about your other books so people get um, to know something about them, too. Well, I think let's um, round up with this this um, enormous tragedy we're talking about today. You know, our our rechargeable lives are built on the backs of um, a colossal invasion of the human rights of the people of the Congo and the destruction of their environment. And this truth is now emerging into the world and change happens in the sequence. First, a horror is revealed. And that's what's happening now. And then people of conscience, people are called to action. And there will be heroes listening now out there in the world who will be called to action to try to set this injustice right. And that is my hope. That is my goal. I gave a promise to every person I interviewed in the Congo that I would do everything I could to ensure their voices would be heard by the world that cannot function without their suffering. And now we move to phase two, which is change. And there's an enormous opportunity for new leaders new champions to emerge, just as they did during the, the, the Congo horror of Leopold's time, to emerge and pull us forward with their force of will uh, to bring some justice and decency and dignity to the people of the Congo. Yeah, and um, I, I suppose one piece of good news is that um, your book has been selling very well, right? A lot of people are reading it. I, I've been so... Uh, heartened by the uh, 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 wide uh, readership of the book. I've received thousands upon thousands of messages and emails from people who have read the book and said, I had no idea. I, I can't believe this is happening. I'm so shocked. And to me, that means that the voices of the Congolese people are being heard. And that's the goal of the book. Yeah. And the book, again, is Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives by Siddharth Kara, who is an author, researcher and activist on modern slavery. I thank you very much, Siddharth, for your work and for this book and for joining us today and um, onward, huh? Thank you so much for your gracious invitation. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much, Siddharth Kara. And thanks to um, Jade and to Summer and to Patty. I'm Esti Dinor. We'll be talking again next week. Bye-bye.